The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They have long said that they believe themselves to be the most popular social movement, um, political sort of power, political force in Afghanistan, I have never been able to ascertain whether they actually truly believe that about their own popularity, believe their own narrative in that regard. They haven't seemed as yet willing to test that proposition, beginning to develop some mechanisms and processes of governance that would test that, I think, are a question for the future. And it's difficult to see how they can develop domestic legitimacy in a really deep sense without some kind of testing of that. But these, to me, are the most fundamental questions and more fundamentally important than whether outside powers approve of the policies and practices and personnel of the government of Afghanistan. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for February 1st, 2022. Nearly six months have passed since the Taliban's sudden takeover of Afghanistan, and as the country faces down a failing economy and looming humanitarian catastrophe, the new Taliban regime is still struggling with what it means to govern, both internally within the country and externally in its relations with the broader international community. To get a sense of the state of play in Afghanistan, I sat down with a panel of experts. Laurel Miller, director of the International Crisis Group's Asia Program, Andrew Watkins, a senior expert on Afghanistan at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Obaidullah Bahir, a lecturer at the American University in Afghanistan and a visiting scholar at the New School. We discuss the Taliban's approach to governing, its changing relationships with the outside world, and what it all means for Afghanistan's future. It's the Lawfare Podcast for February 1st, Afghanistan six months after the Taliban takeover. So, Obadala, I want to start with you and put a question to you that you've got a unique perspective on, um, because, of course, you have spent the last several months living and continuing to live in Afghanistan, in Kabul, I believe. Tell us a little bit what life has been like in Afghanistan and in Kabul for the last several months since the Taliban took control uh, and the ways it has changed and maybe the ways it hasn't changed that those watching the situation from the outside might not fully appreciate. To, to be honest, it's just been a roller coaster. Um, we went from uh, hoping that the cities wouldn't fall, that the major air bases would be able to defend their areas, to 
eventually sitting down with friends and having a serious conversation about where we would evacuate our loved ones if the fighting came to Kabul. And that was very gloomy to even think about or entertain. But there's still this very little glimmer of hope that things would change. But when Kabul fell, everything just flipped on its head and we were dealing with completely new rules and new realities. And it's unfortunate that that has been paired with a lot of change and devolution in the quality of life for people. Afghanistan was a very independent country and with the change of regime and and basically disintegration of institutions to a great extent meant that Afghanistan's economy started spiraling into the abyss. And we've just been dealing with the repercussions of that, meaning our savings are inaccessible to us. There are no jobs for people. And uh, it's just been getting worse. And the world is trying to treat that problem with aid. But it's getting worse faster than any aid can address. Give us a sense a bit about how the Taliban has approached this new task of governing that they found themselves in, in a, in a role of having to exercise that responsibility in at least parts of the country, probably faster than they even anticipated in August. Um, we've seen a lot of comments from the Taliban, particularly in diplomatic talks, committing to respecting certain human rights standards, approaching certain issues about women's rights in particular, involving ethnic and religious minorities in government, um, respect for for certain cosmopolitan and, and human rights values. And then we've seen a lot of criticism, people saying, well, we haven't seen quite all of this happen on the ground. What has been the Taliban's approach to governing in terms of the more everyday activities, actually the life of people on the ground. I'd be particularly curious the extent to which it's, it is consistent across the country or where Kabul and other pockets where sometimes there's a little more visibility into from the outside uh, may be experiencing things differently than the rest of the country or other parts of the country. I think if we take a step back, we look into the Taliban's organizational structure, the fact that they were very a very fluid insurgency, very decentralized, and uh, that was their advantage while fighting. And obviously, that ended up becoming a problem for them. The Taliban have done relatively well in certain departments, considering the circumstances and the context that they're in. But they have taken on unnecessary criticism, taken steps that have hindered their own process of international recognition, so on and so forth. But initially, the provinces and the major cities had vastly different experiences wherein you would find a lot more violations of the amnesty promised to ex-government officials in the provinces. It wouldn't happen as much within the major cities. And also all these varying stories, I think, Part of the reason also was the lack of media coverage or access to specific areas, which meant that uh, news that would not be true would come out as so, and then otherwise new events that had happened would not get coverage either. So there is a very large uh, disinformation space existent, and things have been partially improving. One of the things that is alarming is the amount of strength that the government is giving its intelligence sector. It appears that their worry with regards to insurgencies and and terrorism is driving them towards the same playbook that was used by the United States earlier 
and before it, the communist regimes within Afghanistan, which ended up alienating the population and and bringing the fortunes that it did upon them. So the Taliban doing that is problematic with regards to official governance and day-to-day activities. Uh, I think the policing has partially improved because A, they moved out the rural members that were initially uh, in the checkpoints of the city and holding the security to having more people from closer areas and then putting them through training campaigns uh, and courses so that way it's improving the taliban are still not very trusting of outsiders so with regards to government offices they're trying to make sure the circles are small and of those that they trust i expect that with time that would expand even based on basic necessity of wanting more skilled and experienced people within their circles and to manage things uh, it's, it's going to drive them but uh, again a lot of these decisions are dependent on the taliban and if they want to stay and create a sustainable order they would have to come to realize these things laurel i want to pull you in here a little bit because uh, obaidullah has given us a good view about what the government formation process and the learning curve that in some ways the taliban is wrestling with as any new regime establishing itself has to wrestle with in this sort of circumstance. How has it looked from the outside and been seen by the international community, the United States in particular, but also other members who had certain views about, obviously, people involved in the Taliban movement, many of whom are sanctioned individuals or people accused of various crimes? How has the government formation process on the Taliban side impacted its international relations, impacted and been perceived by those external actors? And what does it tell us about how it's situating itself to engage some of these policy problems Afghanistan is facing? Well, it shows what many people who had focused on Afghanistan, analysts, people in government who were experts on Afghanistan expected, which is that the Taliban would prioritize what they believe they need to prioritize in order to satisfy their constituencies that brought them to power. That's fighters and commanders, number one. And to you know, consolidate their hold on the country and to try to preserve and ensure, as they see it, the durability of their regime. Uh, So I think what we've seen in the appointments in government formation, appointing people who are seen from the outside as as hardliners, uh, some as designated terrorists, but, you know, at the top levels, exclusively Taliban insiders, I think we, we can see from that the realization of what many people expected, which is that they would prioritize their cohesion and, uh, and as I said, you know, splitting up the pie in a way that gives the important shares to their own internal constituencies. I mean, it has to be said, if you look at government formation or regime formation pretty much anywhere in the world in a wide variety of circumstances, you know, there's nothing particularly novel about this approach that they're taking. In terms of governance, I think we've also seen what many experts on Afghanistan expected, which is they don't really have a great idea of how to govern, that they are 
still at a very early stage of determining what kind of system of government they are going to have and how they are going to manage both the ordinary and also the Afghanistan-specific challenges of governance. And I think that will, will take some time. Can you give us a sense of what ha- where has the activity really been focused? I mean, at this stage, is it really an effort to establish the ministries and reestablish a ministry-type structure, accomplish those main elements of governance, and then integrate them with the existing or whatever continues to exist agency structure of the prior government and bringing civil servants back in? Or is it really, are we really talking about a new state apparatus in some regards? You know, what has been the Taliban strategy for the sort of government formation that's taking place so far that we can see? They have mostly kept the same ministries and institutions that existed in the prior system, which also weren't entirely novel to the prior system of the last 20 years. I mean, there is, you know, there is a history in Afghanistan that goes further back than that. So, you know, there there is a combination of trying to lean on the existing institutions of government with some modifications and obviously with modifications at the top in the sense of, you know, this is not an elected government and there's no indication as yet that they would go down the road of having elections uh, or some other form of popular choice in the in the selection of the, the top leadership. It's also, I think it has to be said, I mean, the Taliban is a secretive, very closed organization, and they were quite practiced in those, in you know, the art of non-transparency during the last 20 years when they operated as an insurgency. So to know exactly what's going on inside the senior councils in terms of how their policymaking is is functioning, is not functioning, who's making decisions, how do they make decisions? I think that's that's rather hard to say with any degree of of certainty. But you know, it's also the case that the institutions such as they are today are not fully functional for a combination of reasons, only one of which is uh, the Taliban not at least as yet being terribly competent in government. Another reason is that, you know, Afghanistan was not a very highly institutionalized state before uh, the Taliban takeover. And so there was a lot of inherent weakness at this stage of Afghanistan's political development. And another reason is that there are, to a considerable extent, starved of resources because of the decisions of donors in Western states related to uh, sanctions, asset freezes, and aid cutoffs. And the prior system of government, the prior government was funded to the tune of you know 75% of public spending being provided by external donors. And that has all evaporated. Andrew, I want to pull you in here because we've got a sense now of what the Taliban's been wrestling with in terms of setting up the state apparatus. But let me put it in context now. What are the big challenges that they are facing as we get close to this six-month anniversary of of their takeover, a, a, a notable kind of benchmark? We know we have an economic crisis that Obaidullah has already fleshed out for us to some extent that overlays with 
potential humanitarian crisis in terms of food shortages and other essential supplies shortages. Can you tell us a little bit about what the big challenges the Taliban regime is wrestling with now are likely to be as it enters this this six-month benchmark and what the main underlying drivers are? What are the big challenge? What are they doing or what do they need to do, at least from the perspective of, of outside experts, to get those challenges kind of under control? Yeah, one thing I'd I'd want to start with is the the gap that exists in in some ways between what outside experts uh, or observers or or even advisors to the Taliban might believe are there and the country's biggest challenges and what the Taliban themselves perceive to be the biggest challenges up ahead, uh, because that you know, has, has a great difference in, in how they dedicate time and resources. Uh, Laurel's spoken a bit about their approach to governance and some of their weaknesses or, or lack of development as, as a governing actor, as a political actor. And a lot of the way that they've evolved and become successful as an insurgency, whether that's the secrecy that she's mentioned or the way that they perceive uh, threats to their own organization uh, or even to Afghan society more broadly, you know, that really defines what they spend time and attention on. Uh, historically, the way that they viewed governance uh, also says a lot about where they see potential threats. They are a movement that prides itself on an establishment of law and order. Uh, that might be paramount in their consideration of what a governance ought to do. To generalize, they, they might see their government as not providing services or rights to the Afghan people as much as protecting the Afghan people. But of course, it's their, their definitions of what they're protecting them from. When it comes to the biggest challenges that they face ahead, some are actually not external but internal. The Taliban has grown a lot over the last decade as it adapted and it proved incredibly resilient, you know, to an incredibly powerful modern military alliance against it. And as it managed to grow, it did so through a lot of flexibility and a lot of deal making and a lot of incorporation of, of disparate elements of Afghan society many of whom were drawn into the Taliban out of sheer discontent with the status quo, with the previous Afghan government, and, and with the many different impacts of the Western uh, U.S.-led intervention. But now that means that the Taliban has a great many interests uh, spread across the country and, and, and across a really diverse society to try and juggle internally. That, that has to do with... Uh, wings and factions and elements within the Taliban itself, but also thinking about how to do that across the country more broadly. And again, that's in an organization that has evolved in a very particular way to survive being hunted as an insurgency, but it's it's not clear uh, if they're ready to do that out in the open as, as a political force and, and as Afghanistan's authorities. Some of the biggest challenges externally really zooming out have to do with what Laurel has already mentioned. The, the aid dependency of the previous government is the historical norm rather than the exception for modern Afghan governments and states. Afghanistan has long struggled. Its central governments have long struggled 
to fund themselves and have often sought out or fallen into patronage uh, from one external power or another. Of course, that, that's been complicated by a lot of imperial interference over the last several hundred years in the country and the region. So one thing the Taliban are going to have to grapple with is their relationships with their neighbors. There's a lot of mistrust uh, from some of their neighbors and regional powers. Although there's been overtures by all regional countries, including Russia, China, um, Iran, many of these states are quite wary of not only the Taliban themselves, but of the disorder or the insecurity that might emanate from a Taliban state. There's not a lot of clarity on what they might be able to handle and control or what they might lose control of. And so you have a neighborhood that could, if not grow hostile, is incredibly wary of the Taliban. You have one traditional patron of the Taliban, which is the Pakistani state and its security services. But you have many people in Afghan society and, and within the Taliban themselves who are eager to prove that the Taliban is not a client of Pakistan. And, and so we've already seen, you know, some tensions and, and some flare-ups between the Taliban and, and Pakistan next door. Some believe in what may amount to a demonstration, an attempted demonstration by the Taliban to show that they're not dependent. But all of that makes for an incredibly tense neighborhood compound that with the human cost of, of the different crises. And they've really got a lot to juggle. Well, I want to come back to the neighborhood question, because we've actually seen some interesting things happen the last few months as the Taliban has kind of grappled with its external relations, both the near and far. Um, and I want to come back to both of those. Before I do, though, let, let me turn back to you, Obaidullah, and ask you to share a little bit more of a, a, a ground level view uh, from inside Afghanistan, you know, what are the big challenges that the Taliban is wrestling with from the perspective of their constituents, uh, you know, the people they're, they're governing in Afghanistan, where in terms of those challenges are kind of the rank priorities? You mentioned both, you know, obviously that major economic challenges are a big one to get under wraps, but also um, particularly their focus on counterinsurgency challenges and internal security challenges. What is the the prioritization of the major challenges that need to be addressed in the short term from your perspective or from the perspective of many Afghans that, that you talk to? And how does that line up with what the regime is approaching? How much are they actually channeling the views of Afghans in terms of the challenges they're they're trying to address? And how might that be adapted uh, in a more productive direction? So the context uh, within which the Taliban came to power is important because in the past 20 years, uh, with the efforts put into Afghanistan and its development, the unfortunate reality was that that development and change in living standards never trickled down to the larger population. So there was a large societal disconnect between the urban population and the rural population. That is reflected in the way the Taliban think and act as well, whereas the larger rural population is more conservative. The urban population has a different view of the world. Now, the problem is, since the Taliban take over those divisions, those us and them definers have gone away, wilted away. And now there are two groups staring at each other who cannot comprehend 
why the other person is doing or saying what they're saying. And you can see that in the tension within the female demonstrators and the Taliban, whereas the Taliban see it as absolutely ridiculous and promiscuous for women to come to the, out to the streets and, and demand for what they're demanding. And the women find it absurd for a group to tell them uh, what to wear and, and whether they're allowed to work or not. So it's all of those tensions that are now uh, coming to the surface. And one other extension of that was the general uh, moral hierarchy that the Taliban uh, built in their head. And, and I think going back to what Andrew was saying as well with the tension with the patrons, I kept saying within the days leading up to the eventual fall that if the Taliban came to power through a total victory, it would not just be harmful for Afghans, but the region as a whole. Because what happened was, whereas countries like Iran and Pakistan would have wanted to hold this as a favor when the Taliban eventually came to power through a democratic process or a more a formalized process, peace process, and they would be answerable to them to a certain extent. And, and when the Taliban won through a total victory, they feel like they don't owe anyone anything. And it also means that when they're dealing with the population, they view them as the people who chose to conspire with the imperial invading armies and, and never resisted it. And that's the view that they have of the more educated elite of Afghanistan. But yeah, that's being challenged as well. The Taliban have growing pains as well, which means that they're switching from a very flat insurgent organizational structure to a taller one. So they're trying to establish rank and file. And I think at the core of it all, we just don't have any rules of the game established right now within Afghanistan because there are no institutions as such. And um, because two very different worlds are dealing with each other for the first time, there are no rules of engagement, which is which means that the Taliban barge into one of the female rights demonstrators' house and just abduct her. So um, there are a lot of challenges internally as well, and I think it would have really helped had the uh, humanitarian crisis not been. Uh, looming over everyone's shoulder. Maybe the, the Taliban would have acted differently. Um, but yeah, they seem to have difficulty controlling their fighters, establishing rank and file, changing this general thinking of othering that they fed on during the whole fighting for two decades. Because in order to keep their fighters going, they had to give them a narrative in which everyone else who was in the cities was 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 promiscuous, was morally complicit with the the invading regime, and they're 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 not able to shed that off as quick as would have been better. Um, so yeah, quite a bit of challenges, and also add to that the lack of expertise with regards to governing and policing, uh, the general heavy-handed approach to policing, the lack of having skilled people around. All of those are um, real limitations that the Taliban are trying to deal with. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So let's take a step back and get back, look to this external relations question that Andrew raised, because that intersects a lot with the economic and humanitarian crisis, precisely because of the nexus with foreign assistance and not just foreign assistance, but international economic engagement. Laura, let me turn to you. We've seen some motion in the last six months discussion about within the international community, with among Western governments that have had so far at least kind of the most united front in trying to attach conditionality to recognition and normalization and the easing of sanctions in order to push Afghanistan and the Taliban regime to implement certain standards of uh, human rights standards and other standards for how they treat people domestically among other policy priorities. How have we seen their approach tack, if at all, in light of the humanitarian crisis, in light of some of these other challenges facing Afghanistan? And are we likely to see more motion in that direction as some of these crises may yet come to a head? Well, for the Western governments, I think what we're seeing now is a a collective grasping for what should be the policy response to the Taliban takeover. The humanitarian emergency, I mean, the just incredibly dire humanitarian circumstances there has forced a degree of engagement with the country, with the new regime that is probably greater than you would have seen, but for that set of circumstances. I think you would have seen an even more standoffish approach as the Western governments tried to calibrate what their new policy would be if you hadn't had those those circumstances. So what you've seen so far is a certain, you know, fairly generous so far response in terms of humanitarian aid to the country. I mean, emergency relief kind of aid provided on the condition that it only be delivered through UN agencies and non-governmental organizations directly to the Afghan population without touching the Taliban-run state in any fashion. There is a lot of concern in the humanitarian community and in the non-governmental analytic community that that is an insufficient response to be able to deal with the drivers of the humanitarian emergency because we are also seeing an economic collapse in Afghanistan that is going to, if it persists, perpetuate the humanitarian emergency there. And the economic collapse is driven in large part by Western policy actions, cutting off aid, freezing assets abroad, particularly the central bank reserves, and continuing to enforce pre-existing sanctions on the Taliban in a way that now has a much broader effect than I think ever would have been intended by these sanctions in choking the Afghan economy and starving the the public sector uh, writ large of the resources needed to operate. Whether there is going to be movement in the direction of relaxing that restriction I, I mentioned, you know, support for the Afghan people in terms of humanitarian relief through UN agencies, but no touching the Taliban regime, I think that remains to be seen whether that's going to happen. 
it's a difficult question for governments that were only a few months ago fighting the Taliban to contemplate working with the the state even even on a more selective basis. And I'm frankly not sure we're going to see more movement in that direction. It's, you know, the sanctions regime as it is, just to pick on on one angle of this, I think is not a kind of sanctions regime that you would have crafted for Afghanistan if there were no sanctions at all on the day that the Taliban took over. I think if that were the case, you would have designed sanctions that were more targeted at specific individuals and specific activities. And yet there's a circumstance where those sanctions were in effect. They have a very broad impact on the economy and on the population and on the state, but it's a tremendous political problem in the West to be seen as relaxing sanctions on the Taliban regime. I don't think there's any conditionality formula here that is really going to work in the short term. I mean, we have to be honest that conditionality didn't even work very well with the last government that was, you know, sort of friend and ally of the the Western states. And I don't think conditionality is going to work with this new regime any better, except in perhaps the most marginal ways. And that that leaves very little room for maneuver uh, for the Western states. I want to go now from the broader perspective to a little more regional perspective, too, and, and come back to those issues you were just discussing, Andrew. A big question that has, I think, kind of hovered over the situation since August has been how a Taliban regime will engage with two major uh, neighbors of it. One, Pakistan, traditional sponsor of Taliban in a lot of ways, but one where there's still potential for tension, some of which we've seen in the last few months, uh, and the other being Iran, um, another regime with which the United States, of course, has a very complicated, intense relationship with, uh, in which um, you know, Taliban and Afghanistan also have a complicated history. How have we seen the Taliban approach the regional relationships uh, that it's trying to manage. Um, how have that factored into perhaps some of these crises of the moment, but also the longer term uh, regional stability that might be impacted by obviously any sort of major shift in power and in, in, in who governs a country? Some of some of the, the language, the public messaging and, and what interlocutors would describe as Taliban conversations in the first weeks after their takeover was almost breathtakingly optimistic in terms of what they hoped from from the region. And in particular, there were a number of Taliban officials who made a series of effusive remarks about China and the potential future relationship between the Taliban and China, which one would have assumed would have been mediated somewhat through Pakistan, you know, one of China's clients in the region. But the idea that China could be pivoted to as a completely non-Western source of external investment and of economic growth, but also in, in, in some ways, I think, even as a model of, of how to build up a state absent the kind of Western intervention that you know, Afghanistan saw for the last 20 years, that was really present uh, across Taliban messaging. And we've seen that dialed back a bit, I, I think, in no small part due to China's completely lukewarm response to the Taliban's takeover. 
and it's uh, moving into power. The comparison between uh, even Chinese pledges for emergency aid or relief of the immediate economic crisis are, are paltry compared to what the Western states that Laurel has described have an incredibly problematic relationship with the Taliban, but have nonetheless put forward serious pledges to provide relief to the Afghan people. And so the Taliban have been really trying to sort out themselves how they want to position uh, their new state in the neighborhood. It's not entirely clear that they themselves know quite what they want their identity and their alignments to be. They've offered assurances that they want no problems with neighbors. Their outreach has included even some contact with India, which is perhaps unique among regional and neighboring powers in how concerned it is uh, about the Taliban. But when you look over at Iran, as interesting as the Taliban's approach to Iran is also been Iran's approach and its reciprocal engagement with the Taliban. Iran has perhaps changed more than any other regional state in how it has approached the group since the last time it was power in the 1990s. And Iran's security services have been very quietly, you know, it's reported developing a relationship with the Taliban for the last decade, at least, if not more. Uh, but now that the relationship is becoming an open diplomatic one, in spite of so many contrasts uh, between the religious nature of, of the Shia Iranian state and, and the Sunni uh, Diobandi uh, Hanafi Islamic Taliban and, and many other factors, including their own tense history, it's proven to be quite a functional relationship in most respects thus far. There have been high-level meetings, uh, they've continued, they've engaged on issues of substance. It appears that on some points, Iran is even pleased. It has managed to leverage meetings between the Taliban and figures of, for lack of a better term, the Afghan political opposition. It also may be making progress on more technical-level issues like water rights uh, from rivers that flow from Afghanistan into Iran. But looking much more broadly at the way the Taliban has engaged uh, the region and its neighbors as a whole, it's a bit surprising how adversarial isn't the right word, but obstinate might be. The Taliban have proven far more willing to provoke neighbors through certain statements or on certain issues than one would think an Afghan state still trying to consolidate itself and still unsure of where it sits in regional dynamics would ever really do. It has had, in a sort of cyclical pattern, repeated moments of tension with several of its Central Asian neighbors, with Pakistan, and then even in spite of this positive engagement with Iran, uh, there have been border clashes between Iranian security forces and the Taliban as well. And, and so they've really put themselves in a precarious uh, footing, in particular because if, if the Taliban don't take a, a regional first foreign policy, they, they have some real difficult compromises to consider if, if they're going to have to look back to funding and relief from Western or other states, going back to Laurel's remarks. So 
we're getting close to the end of our time, but Obedel, I want to turn it back to you before I ask kind of one last question of everyone. What do you see coming in terms of the communications between the Taliban government and the Afghan people, to people in Afghanistan, they're they're actively governing now. What is their vision for the new Afghan state in terms of its position in the region and in the broader world? Insofar as this is something they've gotten to yet, and maybe it just isn't, because as you noted, things are very much still in flux as they adapt and figure out the role of governing. What is the role that they aspire to to be, I guess, the Taliban in relation to the Afghan state and the Afghan state in relation to the region and the world. What is that picture of the kind of end goal that they seem to be working towards and putting forward as part of the package of legitimating uh, their role as the government of the Afghan state? Or is that just not something that they've got a cohesive vision of that they're able to communicate at this stage? Well, there were certain conversations that they were delaying. I mean, the fact that when the Taliban took over Kabul, it took them a few weeks to come to an understanding of what their cabinet would look like just shows you that their their lack of cohesion amongst the group with regards to a consolidated vision. And you can also see that based on decisions they took or policies they 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 came out with with regards to things like girls uh, education and the idea was there was there were a few people within the Taliban and the education ministry had come up with a new guideline for how to segregate these schools and and how to move forward yet the, there were members in the cabinet that decided to use this as a leverage point with the west so i mean yes uh, as laurel pointed out the group is very elusive with regards to what they plan. Um, They're not very vocal. And when they are, oftentimes you don't see their actions being in line with what they're saying. But as a group that is traditionalist in nature, uh, one of the limitations that they have is that their social contract is mainly with their fighters. And that too, they're trying to live up to their lowest common denominator, which is the most conservative um, view of the world. And the danger there is that when they betray that vision, there's also the threat of ISKP, which is willing to catch any defectors from the movement. So all of those are challenges. So they're trying to tread a tight rope. But all of that being said, it is an opportunity, this whole post-conflict state, this whole, the Taliban being a very new regime is an opportunity because it shows them as moldable uh, into um, a specific entity. So if we push now and push on the right issues and push in the right way, because it can't be grandstanding, the international community can't turn around and say, unless you do this, probably even the demonstrators or people who are fighting for their rights, maybe they have to be smarter about how they conduct their nonviolent activism, because once things hit a wall, uh, then it'll be very difficult to turn back from it. The Taliban have been pariahs before. There have been indicators this time that they don't want to be those pariahs. They're wanting to engage with the international community and maybe with Afghans as well, as we saw in Oslo. We're just hoping there's more of that and it can lead to tangible results. So uh, we do understand it's not going to be an ideal outcome. Uh, for the civil society in Afghanistan. But we're also hoping that the Taliban don't want to monopolize the vision uh, that they have of the country or the ideological 
and thought space within the country. Because whenever in history, one group has tried to push out another school of thought or ideology, it's just not sustainable. So we have to arrive at a synthesis uh, of both visions so that it can be more sustainable and acceptable to all sides. So we're just about out of time. Before we do, though, I want to leave our listeners with a sense about what to look for as they watch the situation uh, in and around Afghanistan for the next six months and, and the year after that for the, for the foreseeable future. What should people be looking at as the big challenges or perhaps the big indicators in regards to the way things are moving in Afghanistan? What are the big items to track, whether it's accomplishments or actions from the outside towards Afghanistan? What should we be looking at where we can expect either action or consequences from the lack of action in the next six months to a year? Uh, Andrew, let me start with you. Yeah. uh, One thing we haven't mentioned or delved into yet is that the Taliban published a quarterly anticipated budget for uh, the next three months, which surprised a lot of observers with how quickly they they made such a, a technocratic leap. And it's an impressive move from an organization, as Laurel noted, that is still struggling in so many ways to get a handle on governance. And, and the budget itself shows uh, some realism in, in the Taliban and, and perhaps some of its leadership in understanding how to balance Afghanistan's modest current resources with its many challenges. But what will be important to watch is whether or not the way the Taliban deals with money and and the way the economy is functioning is actually represented accurately in this sort of reporting at all. And if it begins to make policy determinations and it begins to define itself, as Obadullah noted, and if that's really reflected in documentation, then that will be quite something. So watching how the Taliban approaches the governance of, of the economy and its own finances is, is definitely a key point. Laura, let me put the same question to you. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on the point that Obadullah made about the very narrow vision of a social contract that the Taliban has. And this is really a point that goes well beyond the next six months, but I think is quite fundamental to the future of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a place like pretty much any society that needs a system of government that enjoys domestic legitimacy. And a question is, can the Taliban deliver on that? Are we going to see in the near term and moving off into the future, any steps on their part to indicate that they even recognize that that's a question they need to answer, whether they can deliver on domestic legitimacy and what kinds of practical measures will they take to do that? They have indicated that they They see a need for a constitution and that they may engage in a process of developing a new constitution or revising the existing one or an earlier one. We'll see what materializes or not in that regard. They have long said that they believe themselves to be the most popular social movement, um, political sort of power, political force in Afghanistan, I have never been able to ascertain whether they actually truly believe that. 
about their own popularity, believe their own narrative in that regard. They haven't seemed as yet willing to test that proposition, beginning to develop some mechanisms and processes of governance that would test that, I think, are a question for the future. And it's difficult to see how they can develop domestic legitimacy in a really deep sense without some kind of testing of that. But these to me are the most fundamental questions and more fundamentally important than whether outside powers approve of the policies and practices and personnel of the government of Afghanistan, because there's never going to be a full meeting of the minds between Western governments and a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan on those matters. And I don't even think there'll be more than a transactional kind of meeting of the minds on policies, practices, personnel between the regional countries and the Taliban. Abaydal, let me give it you the last word. Yeah, it's really important, everything that's been mentioned so far. Uh, the internal legitimacy question is very important, but in order to arrive at that, it, there would also have to be steps uh, which involve dialogue, creating mechanisms in which they can communicate with those that are not Taliban and those that they are ruling right now. And that's sort of connected to the social contract thing as well. Um, for example, a very small example of it is the reason these women take to the streets and then they demonstrate the way that they do is because the only ministry that even for its symbolic value existed to deal with women's affairs was... Uh, removed or canceled by the Taliban, replaced by a ministry of promotion of virtue and prevention of vice. So it just shows you that in order to be able to arrive at a certain legitimacy, and the legitimacy can't just be popular legitimacy, the urban educated class is a very small minority in Afghanistan, but then they are very important as well if the country is to have any future with its economy, with its governance, with its institutions. Um, so the Taliban would have to arrive at an understanding uh, with them. And that also includes creating rules of the game as to what sort of engagement can, cannot happen, what are the things that the Taliban will do, will not do. and just giving more and more power to uh, their intelligence sector and having heavy-handed approaches to dissent isn't the way forward. This isn't going to be sustainable. Grievances are going to increase. So yeah, deal with the internal question. Uh, and that will start with dialogue and eventually end with internal legitimacy. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time and we'll have to leave the conversation there, but we are going to have opportunities to revisit this topic and hopefully with uh, the three of you at some point in the future. But until then, Laurel Miller, Andrew Watkins, Obadella Bahir, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be with you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and share the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. To gain access to our weekly Lawfare Live online discussions, an ad-free version of our podcast, and other benefits, please consider supporting Lawfare on our Patreon account at www.patreon.com lawfare. This podcast was engineered by Kara Shenlin of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patcha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.